Minor Prophet. You can be found in between Obadiah and Micah, the third of the minor of the twelve minor prophets. And it's a unique a unique prophet in that it's a, it's a narrative. It's not so much the words of the prophet as it's about the life of the prophet. Most of the prophets are about prophecy and the oracles of God. But this tends to focus in on Jonah himself. And these, these 48 verses of this book are, are literally really actually deep. They are, they are, they are simple and enough for children to grasp but they are complex enough for adults to grapple with as well. One scholar said it's one of the masterpieces of biblical literature. Or another said that below the surface simplicity of the biblical book, the prophecy of Jonah is an extremely subtle and complex piece of work. That there's a lot of depth there. It's full of irony and twists and turns. And the themes of the book are really God's compassion for the Gentiles, for the outsiders. Uh, one scholar said the book of Jonah is heavy with mercy. The book of Jonah is heavy with mercy. That is one of the main themes. And it's also a book that really is a rebuke of Israel as well, Jonah being a representative of all of Israel. And you'll see there are, there are even many symbols and types that direct us and point us to Christ throughout. And the structure of the book is really that there are two acts. And then each act has two scenes within it. So there's basically four scenes throughout the whole book. And each chapter pretty much just lines up with the four scenes. And so we're going to work through those four major scenes and see what God is doing in that. And this week we'll be looking at the storm in particular. But when we come to a new book, questions like, well, when was this book written? Sometimes come up. What's going on? And when we we read it, there's really no historical context given here. It doesn't uh, give us a background or dates of anything. The only character named in the entire book is Jonah. The king of Nineveh gets no name. No one is ever named except Jonah. And you say, well, who's this Jonah? He gets no background information. There's nothing about it. It's just Jonah, the son of Amenitai. It's like, okay, well, who's that? Well, if we look at 2 Kings 14, we see that there is a Jonah, the son of Amenitai, who lives in Gath-Hefer, which is outside of Galilee, essentially. He's in the, Gal- the north, north of Israel. And he prophesies to the northern king, uh, of Israel, that is Jeroboam II. And he actually prophesies blessing, despite the wickedness of the king, despite the, the lack of repentance of the people at that time and their idolatries going on, God says, I'm going to expand the borders back to their original original state. And that's the prophecy that, that he says, and it is fulfilled in his life. And we, we think that's probably the same prophet that this is. It's most likely. Which means this is a book written in the 8th century in the midst of the Syrian power, and he's probably a contemporary, a younger contemporary of Elisha. Elisha would have been ending his ministry, and Jonah would have been starting off his ministry uh, at that same time. And so this is really a book that's about the disobedience of Jonah. It's an analysis of that, and it's an analysis really of God and his compassion and mercy that is beyond our understanding. So we're going to read Jonah chapter 1, Starting at verse 1, I'll read the, the whole chapter. This is the word of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. 
After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Let us pray together. Father, we come before you knowing that you work by your word and by the power of your spirit that you send forth. And we pray now that you would work to open our minds and our hearts to see the truths of the scripture, to understand them, that they would be buried deep in our hearts that we may see Christ Jesus, see our Savior, see our need of you, see the power and greatness of our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Johnny Cash wrote a song, and these words were written, You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, you can run on for a long time, but sooner or later God will cut you down. It goes on and says, Go tell that long-tongued liar, go and tell that midnight rider, tell the rambler and the gambler and the backbiter, tell them that God's going to cut him down. Tell them that God's going to cut him down. And I couldn't help but think of that song when I was reading Jonah this week. It's, it's sort of similar to the message that Jonah is supposed to send. He's supposed to go to Nineveh and tell them, God's going to cut you down if you don't repent. Judgment is coming. But it's also interesting because it kind of is the message of this chapter, where you see Jonah running. And it's just, you can feel it, where Jonah, you're running to Joppa, you're running to the ship, you're hiding in the hole. Sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. He's going to catch up with you. 
he's, you're not going to make it. You're not going to get away. And we're going to look really at the flight of Jonah, and then this pursuit by the Lord, and then the sailors' fear, the fear of the sailors. So the, the flight of Jonah, the pursuit of the Lord, and the fear of the sailors. Those, those are what we're going to work through as we understand this text. And really, when we look at the flight of Jonah, we see that verses 1, 2, and 3 are really set up the rest of the entire book. They set the stage. We hear the message, and we meet the messenger. And what's the message that is given? You see, what, what, what's the message he's supposed to give? The Lord calls Jonah to preach judgment and repentance to Nineveh. Well, then, well, well who's Nineveh? We know that it says that, that Nineveh is a great city. It's a great city. We know that it's one of the royal cities of Assyria. This would have been a, um, a, a massive, massive metropolis, really, in that day. And Assyria, this Assyrian-Israeli uh, relations are not at their highest moment. They're not in, in, in love with each other right now. They're actually at war. Assyria is the greater power that is 80 years before has already come in and kind of taken taken some tribute and taken some stuff away and the, they had to become vassals of Assyria. So they hate Assyria. Assyria's the enemy. Assyria's the enemy. One of my professors, uh, beloved professor, Dr. Brian Estelle, Old Testament professor at Westminster, said, Nineveh becomes a symbol representing the forces of evil arrayed against the people of God. And it came to be regarded as a symbol of the devil himself. Assyria is like saying the Nazis. Go to Nineveh. Go to Berlin and speak to Hitler. Tell him God's going to cut him down. That's the message. That's the message. And, and we get this, um, this, this irony or this twist here in the wording. It doesn't jump out at us really clearly, but it, it says, God says, get up and go to Nineveh. And, then it re- and we read, Jonah got up and ran away. It's like this contrast. You'd expect to say, he, he, went, he went to Nineveh. No, no, he ran to Tarshish. He went away. And, and why does Jonah flee? Why is he fleeing? You know, I, when I was a kid, I thought the reason he fled was self-preservation. Man, it was a bad place. They're going to kill you there. I wouldn't want to go there. That's scary. You know, and that's one, one idea behind it. And others have pointed out that, you know, Jonah had, had a pretty good prophecy he got to give to his people. Blessing. Now he's got to give a horrible prophecy, and he has to go to the Gentiles. And so his reputation is kind of going downhill. He would have been viewed as the traitor prophet. Instead of spending all of his energy with Israel, who needs repentance, he runs off and offers judgment, but the hope of repentance to Nineveh. That, that's, not, that's not what we want. He'd be the Benedict Arnold of prophets, going off to Nineveh. And so you could say, well, maybe he's fleeing for that reason. And really, it's a crucial question throughout the whole book. Why is he fleeing? And it really doesn't get answered until chapter 4. But I'm going to slightly, you know, give you a little bit of a warning. What what the main reason is, is he doesn't want God to be merciful to them. And he knows God's going to be merciful to them. He knows that mercy can happen. As Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8 says, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. He knows God's merciful and he doesn't want that, so he runs. And where does Jonah run to? Where does Jonah decide to go? He decides to go to Tarshish. It says three times there, he headed for Tarshish. He found a ship for Tarshish. And then he sailed for Tarshish. It just keeps repeating, in case you missed it, this is an emphasis. He's trying to get out of there. 
And where's Tarshish? Where, well, we don't know exactly where it is, but most likely it's, it's in Spain. The, the, either way, every reference to Tarshish is it's really far across the sea. It's the farthest place to go. It's the opposite direction. Assyria is going across the Fertile Crescent, across land to the, uh, to the, to the east, and he's going to the west. He's running across the ocean. As far away as possible. And it's like being told, go up to New York. And then he got on a flight to Australia. So that's not even close. There's no way you can go to the right place. And it's interesting, he heads for the port of Joppa, and he gets there, and he just happens to find a ship to Tarshish. He headed for Tarshish, and there's the ship there. It's like going to the Charlotte airport and just, oh, there's a flight leaving to Australia in two hours, one direct. Wow, what providence, what timing. This has just worked out perfectly for Jonah. You know, he thought he might have to wait a while. It's rare to find a route, a way to get there, and he just happens to run into it. You can almost feel like Jonah thought something good was happening. And it says twice in verse 3, his purpose. It says, he fled from the presence of the Lord. And it repeats it again. He fled from the presence of the Lord. Literally, the face of the Lord. Jonah's got a purpose. He's running from God's word. And we see that this running is in a very intentional effort. He brings money with him to pay for this fare. He's planned ahead. He pulled the money out of his bank account. He prepared. It wasn't just an impulse. And it's a very concerted effort. I mean, Tarshish is not a short journey. This would have been a year-long journey, probably. So he's really committed to this. And it's really a rebellious effort. He's running away from the face of God. We might say, what a fool. Running from God who controls all things. What a futile plan he has. It's a silly idea, isn't it? Running from the God who made all things. Well, you and I really do the same thing. We really do the same thing. How do I act this foolishly, you ask? Well, I think one thing to realize is that Jonah did not doubt the omnipresence of God. He didn't think God wouldn't be there. But he's running from the felt presence of God, from the word of God, from the will of God. That's what he's running from. He knows God will be there, but there won't be the reminder. There won't be the felt presence of this is where God is. He'll be far away. You know, we do this when God's word keeps coming to our mind regarding a particular sin. But we suppress the thought. But we suppress it. We get rid of it. Say, everybody does that. Or maybe, maybe it's, it's you've missed family devotions for a week. You've, you've, you haven't had an opportunity. And you remember, tonight is a good night. But then you just kind of let the moment pass. You don't pursue it. You run from that presence, that will of God. Or maybe it's something like you should ask forgiveness for a sarcastic comment. You know you should. But when the time comes, when you meet the person again, your pride overrules God's word, which says to confess your sins. Or we even do this when we run from a particular church. A particular group of Christians, specific Christians. God's word said we need to reconcile and love one another, but we don't want to do that. We want to get away from that. We want to run from God's presence. Are you running from God? Are you like Jonah? Have you fled to avoid doing his will? His will in areas that are hard and wills in areas we don't want to deal with. Do you neglect the privilege of the revealed word. Jonah had this privilege and he neglected it. And, and I think Opama Roberts can, gives us a helpful reminder when he says, it is not an evil you are escaping when you flee from the will of God. 
His will for those who trust him always is an embodiment of his perfect love. That running from his will is really foolish. We see that in Jonah, and that is true of us. When we run from his will, his law that tells us what to do, his word gives us commands, they're really running from the embodiment of his love for us. So stop running. Come back to the Lord. Come back to him. You may have been running in this area in your life for years. Maybe you've been running as you come to church every single week, sitting in the pews, but you run in this area, in this way. You're not to run from our God, from his will, his revealed will, that is a blessing to us. It is a foolish and idiotic thing to run from God and his will. And yet we do it. We're like Jonah. One scholar said, Life never stands still. You're either running with the will of God or you're fleeing from the will of God. Are you running with the will of God or are you fleeing from the will of God? That's an important question as we look at the flight of Jonah. Are we fleeing from the real will of God? But then verses 4 through 9 really change the subject. We've got the introduction of the whole book set up. And we see the pursuit of the Lord in verse 4 through 9. The pursuit of the Lord. God pursues Jonah through the storm first. Verse 4 says, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Now it's emphatic the position of the Lord. The Lord did this. God sends the wind. God pursues. God acts. We have Jonah running. And in counterpoint, we have God launching his storm after him. That's the picture we get here. And it's a dangerous storm, isn't it? Notice that, that the ship is threatened to break up. The, 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 it's really a personification. The ship thought it would be broken up. This, this um, language. And the sailors, what do they start doing? They start throwing the stuff overboard. It's, it's interesting, it's this word hurl that's used for throwing gets used several times in this passage. God hurls a wind onto the waters. The people hurl the stuff out. They're chucking stuff overboard because they're fearing for their life. So this is a dangerous storm. And I think it's important to realize that, that sailors don't do this. They don't act desperately um, just every time they see wind. You know, one of the commentators was in a, a, a commercial fisherman in Alaska, and he talked about how they would, the men there would just, they wouldn't even flinch in the cold wind. They wouldn't shake amidst the waves crashing. They wouldn't even stir. So the fact that these sailors who are sailing to Tarshish a long way are fearing for their life means this is a perilous storm. And God pursues him through this storm. And what is Jonah doing while the storm's going on. You see what he's doing? It's, it's comical. He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. Has anyone tried to sleep in a storm? I, I haven't, but I don't think it will work very well. I mean, it's not usually when people are asleep. Why is he asleep? There's different ideas. It's, some say, well, Jonah's exhausted. He's been running from God, and running from God is wearing it. He's just... He's just, he's just wiped out and he needs to sleep. Or others have pointed out, maybe he thinks it's over. You know, he's, he's relaxed. The incident is over. It's past me. I got on the ship. I paid my fare. It's done. I went down to sleep, to rest, to enjoy my decision. God lined it all up so I could get the ship and here I am. Or maybe I think there's even a possibility that he's really given up. That he's just gone down into the hole because 
he doesn't care if he dies or lives. And and the the the, the Hebrew doesn't they, the, the NIV really emphasizes it, it's after right or it's before that there's a timing here. But I, the timing is ambiguous. I think it's really Jonah knows there's a storm and he goes down in the hole and falls asleep. It's not that the storm just suddenly snuck up on him while he's asleep, but the idea that I think he's he's there and the, the men are throwing stuff overboard, but Jonah goes down and falls asleep. This is contrast between the sailors and him. He's just given up. He doesn't care. I think that's really the picture we can see. And really the main idea, either way, is that God is pursuing Jonah, and Jonah is hiding from God, one way or another. So God pursues Jonah through this storm, but then he pursues him through this captain. And this one's a little more subtle. In verse 6, the captain has this statement. It's kind of an ironic statement. It's a twist. He says, Arise, call on your God. Get up, call on your God. Which is an, a clear echo to verse 2, where God says, Get up and call to the people of Nineveh, that is, preach. And so it's the exact same language. And, and the captain would not have known this, obviously, but Jonah would have heard it. This is the Lord's message to me, except now he's telling me to call on my God. And it's really an irony here that there's this echo, and it's a reminder of what he's supposed to do. It's a clear reminder of what he's supposed to do. But Jonah does not respond to this reminder with prayer. He doesn't seem to respond by calling upon God or repenting. Isn't that like us when God gives us those reminders, those subtle reminders that that nobody even knows in the room is a reminder to us of what we're called to do? God gives us a second chance and we dig our heels in. Say, no, I'm going to push that aside. I don't want that. God reminds reminds us of his will. But we sometimes fail to acknowledge it or do that. I think, and it's really an irony here that this pursuit of the Lord occurs inadvertently through the words of the captain. Is God pursuing you to the people around you? Even inadvertently, even without them knowing? Is God pursuing you that way? He does. God pursues us through the storm, and then God pursues Jonah through the captain. But then thirdly, God God pursues Jonah through the sailors. The sailors get an idea. Do you see what their idea is? Let's cast some lots. We've got to figure out where this storm is coming from. Who is the source of this? This is a unique storm. It's almost like they know it's supernatural, and we've got to figure out the source of this, figure out how to resolve it. And, and casting lots would have been comparable to rolling dice or flipping a coin. And, and the lots are being cast. They're discerning the will of God. And Jonah's there. And you can think Jonah, Jonah knows his, his Old Testament well. You think that jo- Proverbs 16.33 would have been running through his head. The lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. You know, why doesn't Jonah just admit it beforehand? It's almost like you could see Jonah waiting there. Is he waiting? Is he hoping the lot won't fall on him? Maybe it was someone else's fault this time? It seems like he would have known it. And he doesn't say anything until the game is up. And the lot falls on Jonah. And then a flurry of questions. Who are you? What are you doing? What do you do? Where do you come from? Explain yourself, man. Explain yourself. And then we hear this, this, this really essential statement of the passage. This confession of God. And notice in this confession in verse 9. These are, these are Jonah's first words. He hasn't spoken yet in the whole book. And his first words, we've seen his actions for a long time, and here's the first words. 
I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. It's this eloquent statement, this great confession. He uses the covenantal name Yahweh, the Lord in all caps, in most of our translations. And he puts that, and then he explains, this is the God, the creator of all things. He says, this is the big one. This is the God. That's what I'm talking about. I don't, I don't serve a local deity. I serve the one who made everything you see. And Jonah admits he's running from God and that God is pursuing him. He admits it. Finally comes to terms with it. And I think we want to see that God uses every means necessary to pursue his people. He uses this storm. He uses nature to pursue his people. He uses people, this captain and his words to pursue Jonah, to prick his conscience. And then he uses chance, the rolling of the dice, this lots, to pursue Jonah. God chases and hounds his people until they submit to his will. And I think from this pursuit, we see that God is loving and God is sovereign. We see the, the mercy of God and the authority of God. So only at first we see the loving nature of God because God pursues rather than punishes him. God doesn't have to pursue him. He could just punish him for his disobedience. But he loves him. And so he pursues him. He chases him down. He hounds him down. And yes, it's a dangerous pursuit. Yes, it's an exposing, uncomfortable pursuit. But it shows God's love. It's like God saying, I will hound you down and I will win you over. You will follow my word. I will win you over. You are mine. And we're going to see Jonah's brokenness in chapter 2 really opened up a lot more. But right now we don't see that. But God loves his people dearly. And he won't just give them up lightly. I think that's the first thing we see in this pursuit. But we also see in this pursuit that God is sovereign. The whole time God is in control. He is the one who is the God over all creation. The ship is helpless there. The the sailors are helpless. God is in control of this situation. God is in control of the lots. God is in control of the whole thing. God is sovereign over the storms. He is sovereign over the words of strangers. He is sovereign over the rolling of dice in your own life. I think that's important to remember. Psalm 33.7 says, He gathers the waters of the sea into a jar. He puts the deep into storehouses. Isn't that a great picture? The seas, he just pours them into a jar. That's how small and controllable they are for him. That is the sovereign Lord. And your life and your every circumstance is in his hands. This very week, whether it comes down to the rolling of dice in a board game you play, or the switching of a light when you're trying to get to work on time, and it switches red or green, providentially or either way, and I think there's thinking of how to um, explain this. And I was thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm more of a dog person, but we had a cat growing up, too. And, and one day the cat climbed, climbed up to this tree, and it got stuck up there. And it was pretty high up. I mean, it was well over 20 feet. So we had to get this long extended ladder, and, and my, my sister and my mom were worried, and they needed the cat to come down immediately. And since I was the only one there, I was responsible to go up and get this cat. And me and the cat weren't enemies, but we weren't on great terms either. So it's kind of, we're get, getting up this ladder and it's leaning on this tree. And I'm, I'm 25 feet up. I'm looking down going, this is going to hurt if I fall. So I'm trying to reach out to get, to get the cat. And he's just clinging to the branch. He doesn't want to move. 
he's not going to let go one bit. He's not going to let me grab him. And I, it took, I remember spending a long time just trying to coax him into coming toward me. Let go of the branch and you'll be safe. Come to me. And as soon as he let go, when he felt me, he just clung to me immediately. And I think that's really a picture of what it means to cling to God as sovereign. That we cling to that branch in our life. The, 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 whether it's money, whether it's our own job, whether it's our own family, whether it's our spouse, whether it's um, power or just you know, our own education, our own work habits. We cling to other things when we should be letting go of those things and clinging to God. He will provide that security. He will provide that security. Not yourself, not the things of this world. Sure, he can use those things. But he can use those things to chase you too. And to pursue you. We need to rest in the sovereign arms of God. And it really reminds me of Jesus' words. When Jesus said in verse in chapter 10 of John, My Father who has given them to me, that is my sheep, is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. There it is. God's sovereign. And the security of that. No one is greater than the Father. And no one can snatch them out of his hand. That is God's pursuit of his people. God can and does use every means necessary to pursue his prophet Jonah. And he pursues his people because he loves them and he is sovereign. So we've seen the flight of Jonah, the foolishness of this flight. And we've seen that the Lord pursues, the pursuit of the Lord is loving and sovereign pursuits. But then we move to the final section, which is really the fear of the sailors. The fear of the sailors. We come back to this confession. Jonah makes this confession, and there's really three ironies that come out here. And the first is simply this. Jonah's running from preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord. He's running from Assyria, and now he's preaching the Lord to the Gentiles and the sailors that he didn't expect to do. There's this kind of joke there that's being, that's being probed at. And it's, it's, it's really meant to be a little bit funny that Jonah's opening line contradicts exactly what he wanted in the, in the first you know, six or eight verses. And it's almost like Indiana Jones, who's afraid of snakes, and you know he's afraid of snakes the whole movie, and then the final scene, what does he have to do? He has to climb into a tomb full of snakes. It's like, Jonah doesn't want to preach, doesn't want to preach. Oh, he's preaching now. We're supposed to kind of see the humor there. But then also there's a second irony. Jonah says, I fear God. The word, the word I worship and I fear is the exact same word in Hebrew. And, and the idea is he worships him. That's the connotation. But it's also the same word for fear. And we hear the words of Jonah, I fear God. And then right after this confession it says, and the sailors were terrified. The, the way it expresses it is they feared a great fear. Jonah says he fears God, but then we see the sailors actually fearing God. And there's this irony there, this contrast between these two. And we're supposed to go, yeah, Jonah, you, you, that's a great thing you said, but these are the ones who are fearing God, these sailors. They're fearing God. And I think when we see from that, one thing is we see is do we say what we do? Do we say what we do? Do we say one thing and do another like Jonah did? Or are we doing the same thing we say? And I think that's something to ask ourselves. Do we say we fear him, but our actions, our behaviors show we don't really fear him? I think that's something to reflect upon. 
sometimes we do that when we talk about God. We say, well, tell somebody our life story. I'm running from God right now. But, you know, God is all love and he cares for you. You should, you should, you should, you know, check out this God even though I'm running from him right now. Or, or we might say, you know, I don't really go to the church, but turn to Jesus Christ because he's, well, he's the head of the church and he's the savior. You know, we say one thing and we do another. We say, I haven't really read the Bible in weeks. Yeah, but, you know, we're talking to non-Christians. The Bible is the lamp to your feet and it's, it's water for your weary soul. But then we haven't read it. We haven't pursued it. I wanna, we want to teach people. Forgive one another. And we look at our own life and we're not forgiving. And there's that contrast there. We, that our speech and our actions should reflect the truth of God. It shouldn't reflect a hypocrisy. But then the sea in verse 9 is getting rougher and rougher, it says. After this confession, the sailors are terrified, but time is running out. We know the source of the problem, but what is the solution? So they go, well, what do we do, Jonah? What do we do? And Jonah gives an interesting solution. It's pretty dramatic. It says, throw me into the sea. Chuck me into the waves where I will die. That will, that will solve your problems. And, and why does Jonah tell the sailors to do this? Why does he say this? And there's really two lines of thought here that are, that are different. One of them is that he's being heroic. And the other is that he's being psychotic. He's either being sacrificial or he's being suicidal. The sacrificial idea is that Jonah has accepted the punishment of God. He knows the storm's here for him. So he says, throw me in. He's accepting God's just wrath and really dying for the sake of the sailors. And one of the supports of that idea is this word hurl, this word throw again is used, is the same word used in the Old Testament to talk about sin being thrown out of the camp. So Jonah's the sin being thrown out of the camp and he's sacrificially dying for the sailors. And I think there's an element of truth in that. But I don't think that's the thrust of what's been going on in Jonah that he's all of a sudden going to be perfectly noble when he hasn't seemed that way. And I, I, I don't think he's totally turned yet. And, and the, the, Because the other idea is the suicidal idea. That's Jonah. He's continuing to run from God. He says, okay, and I go to the farthest place from Nineveh. Throw me into the ocean, God. I'll die. I'll give in, but I'm going to die. I won't be able to preach anymore. I'll be done with it. I'll run, continuing to run from God. And, and I think that there's a little bit of both in it, but I think it's primarily the suicidal. And why do I say that? Is that, well, it's one, he doesn't want the sailors to die. If he did, he wouldn't tell them to throw them into the sea. So I think there's an element of nobility in that. He's not allowing them to die anymore. He's just going to die. But Jonah knows of the repentance of the, the mercy of God. He knows God is compassionate. And yet we don't... The, the, the text is strangely silent to any prayer to God, any repentance. And he's had numerous times. He goes below and he's silently asleep. We see that he gets called out by the captain. Call upon your God. There's no explanation that he ever calls upon his God. And then we see... This, um, this lot's falling on him. And he, he confesses, this is the Lord, but he never directs anything to God. It doesn't, there's no explanation of him repenting or him um, even praying to God. And so I think that Jonah wants to run from God, but he doesn't want to endanger the sailors anymore. 
He knows it's his fault, so he says, I'll take it on. But he wants to continue running. He's not given himself over to God. I don't think he has yet. And this is the third irony. And that's how I think it fits clearly into the text. And that is that Jonah wants to kill himself. And the sailors, the Gentiles, don't want to. Jonah is not respecting life or fearing God, but the sailors are. There's this irony there that Jonah should, should be one who's turning to God. But what is it, what, they don't turn to God. The sailors, instead, they, they immediately row towards shore. You see that? Verse 13. They make a latch-ditch effort to get him back to shore. We'll try one more time. And then it doesn't work. The sea is getting riler and riler. They have to make a decision. They have to make a decision. And so what do they do? They do exactly what Jonah should be doing this entire chapter. They pray to the Lord. The Gentiles. Jonah doesn't pray. The Gentiles pray. And they pray, notice, to the Lord. The Lord is repeated several times in verses 14 through 16. And this, this prayer says, it basically implies God is just. He punishes the guilty and lets the innocent go. It acknowledges that. Also, it has this phrase, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Again, emphasizing the sovereignty of God. But that phrase, you have done as you, as you pleased, Lord, is used in the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament. And all the other contexts, it talks about God being above all creation. He does as he pleases. And above every idol. He does as he pleases. And so really, we've seen these sailors, we're not sure if they really got converted, but they certainly changed. And they understood that the Lord was different from these other gods they've run into. And they regretfully and prayerfully throw Jonah in. And then it calms down. The waters calm. And then you see that the sailors, again in verse 16, greatly fear the Lord. Again, it repeats it. And then it supports that fear with actions. They offered sacrifices to the Lord, it says, and they made vows. Like I said, we don't know if they were converted, but they definitely were changed by this event. And we have the irony there of the prophet of God who requests suicide. Showing no signs of the fear of the Lord or prayer. And these Gentiles show great signs of the fear of the Lord. And they pray. And so we see those three ironies. Jonah doesn't want to preach to the Gentiles, and here he's preaching to the Gentiles. Jonah says, I fear the Lord. But then it says the sailors greatly feared the Lord. Jonah says, throw me into the sea. Get rid of me. He doesn't respect the life. The sailors fear God, respect life, and pray to him. There's this irony there. And you can't help but see the loss of reverence for God in Jonah. Loss of reverence for God. The fear of the Lord is not seen to be at his forefront. And, and, and Jonah, remember, he's a spiritually elite. He's the pastor. He's the one who's supposed to be leading the people. And he is not fearing God. And we can't help but make a connection. Jonah represents Israel. Israel is now the church. Has the church lost its reverence for God? Have we lost the fear of God? Have we grown irreverent or complacent because of the benefits we have? Because we handle such awesome truths on a regular basis. 
do we neglect the privileges of God? The privilege to hear and study and read his word every week. Every day, really. But does our response to that word reflect the fear of God? The fear of God. Or do we, like Jonah, run and hide from his command? You have to remember, sooner or later, God will cut you down. The pursuit of God is real. It is loving, but it is sovereign and real. You're not going to get away. He will get you. He will find you. He will pursue you. He pursues his own. Are you fearing the Lord or fleeing from him? And I think when we see that, that language, sooner or later God will cut you down, it sounds terrifying, but there is so much hope that you can't help but notice these little glimmers of pointing to, 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 to the Gospels in this very narrative, that Jesus is that hope and that light. Who is it that falls asleep in the back of the boat? Jesus. But not because he was running from God, but because he was laboring all day in the ministry of the Word. He's being obedient and righteous for us. And you see that uh, the, the, the Jesus is the one who stills the storm, right? Isn't that, doesn't this passage remind you of that? He stands up, says, be still. And what does it say the disciples do? It says they were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this who even the wind and the waves obey? The answer is, he's the God-man. He's the Savior, the Redeemer of this world. And you can't help but see that Jonah is the one who rightly asks to be thrown into the sea of God's judgment for you and for me. That's who he is. He died on the cross voluntarily for his people. For you, he paid the price. Do we pray to God in a reverent fear? Or do we flee from him in his presence and his word as Jonah is fleeing from the word? God Jesus Christ is the Word. There's so many connections here. Jesus is that Word made flesh. Psalm 145, 18 and 19 reads, The Lord is near to all who call on Him. To all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. He hears their cry and saves them. God calls His church, His people to fear Him to cry out to him, to pray to him. And we have to ask ourselves, are we fleeing from the word? Are we running towards it? Are we fearing the Lord? Are we, are we are being hypocrites? Are we ignoring it? Let us pray together. Father, I pray that you would teach us to fear you reverently. You would teach us to not flee from you, not run from you, to see the foolishness of where, when we flee from you, when we run away from you, how silly it is to try to hide from your word, to hide from your spirit. But may we see that you are a loving God who pursues your people that you are a sovereign God, that we will not get away, that we need to cling to you, and that we need to let go of the things of this world that we cling to. Teach us to fear you 
and honor you in reverence and to call upon your name, to call upon your Savior, the Word made flesh, Christ Jesus. For that is our hope. That is our hope. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.